Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. If I had a time machine and I could go back in time and pastor any church in history, I mean, I'd pick this church here for sure. But I'll tell you the church I would not pick, and that is the church that was located in Corinth, which is where we begin our verse-by-verse study this morning through the book of 1 Corinthians. You would probably not be surprised to find out that the city in Corinth was a pretty wicked place. To say that the folks in Corinth were like guests on the Jerry Springer show would be an insult and a slap in the face to the guests on the Jerry Springer show. Um, The phrase playing the Corinthian was known throughout the Roman Empire as a person who was a drunk or a prostitute or just lived a loose kind of life. Every night, thousands of so-called priestesses hit the streets to play the role of prostitute in that society. And not only was that tolerated, it was actually institutionalized as a part of Corinthian religion. So very much unlike our study through the book of Romans, in which the Apostle Paul basically lays out a thorough treatment of the gospel and deals with maybe one minor issue, and that between discord over uh, legalism versus license between Jew and Gentile kind of thing. Uh, This book is a treatment of all kinds of problems happening within the church there in Corinth. If you were to give them a grade, you'd probably give them a D for defiled, defamed, and divided amongst themselves and within the community. In fact, it appears that they had written Paul a letter asking for his guidance on some theological questions, but it's not until chapter 7 that he even begins to answer those questions because he takes the first six chapters just to basically correct and rebuke them. Now, here's the good news for our purposes. Because this church has such a wide array of problems, we get to glean from and study and take these lessons and then implement them as a church body practically so that we can apply those kinds of uh, methods and scenarios as they come up, as we face these things as a church. You may have heard it said before that experience is the best teacher, and maybe that's true, but it doesn't always have to be our experience. We can learn from other people's experience. In fact, that seems to be the intent of the scriptures. Oftentimes, biblical characters, even very godly ones, find themselves blowing it or falling into some kind of a trap or sinning in a big way. And you and I can study from that and go, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen to us. And I know I've taught on such passages. I've taught passages highlighting a type of sin that you can make and then the very next week fall into that very same trap. And so that's exactly what we're trying not to do here. Learn from these Corinthian Christians who were blowing it. Now, remember that Paul was writing to the Romans while he was in Corinth. 
And so you may remember there the very uh, beginning of Romans, the second half of Romans 1, as he talked about the debased mind and the rejection of God leading to outright moral chaos within a society. Well, who knows, but possibly all that prompted that was the Apostle Paul writing from Corinth to Rome. All he had to do was look out the window and he saw the depraved mind at work in Corinth. We're talking about a city that was between five and 700,000 people. Paul spent a year and a half there trying to establish this church because he knew all about it. He knew what the potential problems could be. It was a stretch of land, Corinth, about four miles long that connected the uh, Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. So instead of sailors going all around the peninsula, some 200 miles of treacherous waters, they could just put their boat on rollers and roll across this four-mile stretch, save them a lot of time. Well, because of that, Corinth became a place that was wealthy and affluent and touristy. And because of that, well, pleasure seekers would come there uh, spending their money on a holiday from morality, so to speak. You've heard it said before that what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's funny how everybody knows that motto. Would you know if I started saying, and 1 Corinthians 5 says, no, no one would know. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But that's not necessarily true because sin and immorality in a city, don't always stay in the city. They oftentimes creep into the church. And sure enough, by the time that Paul writes this letter, that's exactly what had happened. Paul had gone to establish a church in that city, but the city was getting into the church. The church was supposed to have an impact on Corinth, but Corinth was having an impact on the church. Paul Later on, down the road, he leaves Corinth. He's on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus as he writes this letter, and major problems had developed at this point. You've heard of autoimmune disease before. Our immune system works to protect our bodies from uh, disease and infection. But when someone has autoimmune disease, what ends up happening is your immune system attacks your healthy cells almost by mistake. Well, the church in Corinth there had autoimmune disease. They were really at each other. They were suing one another in a secular court. Bad testimony. There was sexual immorality going on, but more than that, they were parading about it. They were bragging. I mean, at least what we could say about the church in Corinth, they didn't have a legalism problem. They had a license problem. They were bragging about how open they were and accepting to all kinds of different gross sexual immorality that was taking place in the church. They were also arguing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, instead of just thanking God and using their gifts, they were comparing one another's gifts. And then what we'll see next time, there were factions in the church as well over who their favorite Bible teacher was. Now, again, we'll get to some of these things as we go, but oftentimes people have said, and I don't know of anyone here in this room who's ever said this, so I'm not talking about you. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm not talking about you. I may have said this before, but people will say sometimes, we gotta get back to the early church. 
you know, we've gotten too far away from the early church and we got to get back to the early church. But you may remember now that more often than not, the epistles that Paul wrote were corrective in nature. He was correcting false doctrine and unholy living that was going on within the church. Well, reason why? Because churches, and I mean all churches, have problems. Even the early churches had problems. And so 1 Corinthians becomes for us a great book because it's very practical. We get to really look at specific kinds of scenarios and how uh, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of this Holy Spirit, uh, teaches us to deal with those things. But let me just say this before we jump in this morning, because we're not even going to get to those problems today. Practical problems always require spiritual solutions within the church. Practical problems require proper perspective within the church. You can have all of the practical wisdom in the world, but if you try to operate independent of the leading of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. And that's kind of where we're going to begin this morning before we start to tackle all of these specific challenges that they were having within the church. Uh, in the ancient world, when you wrote a letter, it was basically comprised of four parts. You would, number one, identify yourself. Number two, identify your audience. Number three, there would be a greeting of sorts. And then number four, you would say something favorable or a note of thanksgiving about your audience, which, of course, would be tough in the case of the Corinthians. But the Apostle Paul will try his best, and we'll see what he comes up with this morning in the text. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And that word called there, you might want to circle that or underline that word. It's there three times in the first nine verses, which is all we're going to go through this morning. That word called, we usually associate that with a particular office or function that we might have within the church or even outside of the church. I'm called to teach, you're called to lead worship, or you're called to the kids, or you're called to be a mom or a grandma or something like that, okay? And although it is true that that word is used that way, two of the three instances in which the Apostle Paul uses that word in these nine verses, he's not using it to describe an office or a particular function within the body of Christ. So take note of that, and that's important in our understanding this morning as well. Notice also there that in this instance, this is the one time in which it does describe his function. He's called an apostle. The Apostle Paul here, because this letter is corrective in nature, he wants to lay out his authority that he is an apostle. And this is God's calling upon his life to do this very thing, to write this kind of a letter, to let them know which of these practices they were off on and these teachings they were off on and some of these behaviors that needed to be changed. And then finally, also look there in verse 1 at those two words, to be. Most of your Bibles, you'll see that those words are in italics which means that they're assumed, but they're not included in the original language. So in the original language, verse 1 would read, Paul called an apostle. Called an apostle. That was what he was. He was called an apostle. The translators 
assumed those words, so they put them in, because Greek and English doesn't always translate as nicely as we would like them to. And I think we're going to see those two words, to be, again in verse 2, and I think they're actually important that there's a reason why they included those words. Oftentimes, Bible teachers will say, well, those words shouldn't be there, and maybe they're right, but at the same time, I think there's a reason why they're there, and we'll see that in verse 2. So here's Paul. He's the author, along with, it says there, Sosthenes, our brother. Now, you may or may not know who Sosthenes is. If you remember last time, as Paul was wrapping up the letter of the book of Romans, he was greeting and sending greetings from various people that he had run into, mostly in Corinth. And we quoted a lot from Acts 18. Well, that's also where we meet Sosthenes. Sosthenes was the ruler in the synagogue there in Corinth. So he's a Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee type of guy. He's not a Christian at the time when Paul arrives. In fact, he's kind of the number two guy in charge because Crispus was the main guy in charge. And as soon as Paul came on the scene, he and his household gave his life to Christ and he started to walk with the Lord alongside the apostle Paul. So Sosthenes becomes the ruler of the synagogue and the Jews, as always was the case in any city that Paul went to, had an uprising against the apostle Paul. And they tried to bring Paul, they tried to drag him into court with trumped up charges that he had done something wrong. Well, the governor there in Corinth, a man by the name of Galio, before the apostle Paul even opened his mouth to defend his case, he cut him off and said, look, if this is some kind of a matter about your religion within your religion, a discussion that has to do with your religion, please keep it between yourselves. This has nothing to do with what goes on here in the court. And he dismissed them and said, get out of here. Well, some of the Gentiles were angry with Sosthenes for wasting their time with that trial, and so they beat Sosthenes. You talk about the shoe being on the other foot for once. I mean, here's Paul. He's always getting beat wherever he goes, and poor Sosthenes, one of the religious leaders, is getting beat by the Gentiles for once. Well, guess who probably comes to the aid of this Jewish religious leader who had opposed Paul and dragged him to court to try to get him to stop preaching the gospel. Paul probably comes to the aid of Sosthenes. And probably because only he could say, look, I know what it's like to be beaten down like that. Let me tell you about the love of Christ. This tells me something very, very important. Actually, a couple things that are very important. Number one, this tells me that sometimes your biggest foe could end up being your best friend somewhere down the road. That You know, the very time in which a person might be the most open to the gospel is when they're the most antagonistic to the gospel. I tell you, the people who I don't like sharing my faith with very much are the ones who are indifferent, who are like, yeah, whatever, that works for you. I mean, I would much rather talk to the person who's upset and heated because typically they're the ones that are convicted by you or by your message or by what you believe. And God's tugging at their heart. And that's exactly what Paul did. Now, here's the other thing we have to learn from that, though. When the world beats them up, so to speak, you know, when they have their worst day and when it's all coming down on them, then we need to be the ones to help put the pieces back together. We need to be the ones to rally to their side, bring them a cup of water, put a Band-Aid on them, and tell them about Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul did. And here now is Sosthenes. 
He's probably the scribe with Paul writing this letter, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And the word sanctified there and the word saints is a variation of the same word in the Greek language. It's used to ascribe an instrument that was used in the worship of God in the Old Testament, in the temple, or in the tabernacle. So anything associated with this word here is something that is set aside for the exclusive use of God. So in this case, what is set aside for the exclusive use for God's purposes? The saints that were in Corinth. And that's why I think the translators were right in including those words called to be saints. Because I think it's actually implied, especially in light of this letter, that Paul writes in which he is correcting them for bad behavior, it is implied that these saints are called to be instruments in the hands of God. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't do or be something in order to be a saint, right? We talked about that clearly in the book of Romans. You either are or you are not. You're a saint or you're an ain't, as J. Vernon McGee once said. You are saved if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. There's nothing that you do to become a saint. But I believe the implication here is, since he's writing to Christians who are saints, then act like it. You're called to be saints, so act like saints. Because one of the big problems for this church in Corinth was their testimony within Corinth was a bad deal altogether. Reminds me of this story. I don't know for sure it's true. It, it could be, um, you know, an allegory or metaphor or something like that, a parable. But I've, I've read it in many, many sources. And uh, it's an interesting story of two teenagers who were caught uh, stealing sheep one day. And uh, as punishment, pretty harsh punishment, they decided that they would brand on their forehead the letters S-T, sheep thief, like a tattoo that they would wear for the rest of their lives. Could you imagine, I mean, L-I-A-R, you know, just branded over my forehead for the rest of my life or whatever your sin is. That was their punishment. I mean, actually, after a while, our heads would just be black with ink from all of the different things that we would done down throughout the years. But they have S-T on their forehead. Well, one of the brothers skipped town and said, forget that, I'm out of here. And he decided to live his life in obscurity because he just couldn't take that punishment of being known as a sheep thief for the rest of his life. But the other brother decided that he would try to change people's hearts. He would try to win them over. He would try to earn and regain people's trusts. And so he set out to do that. Well, sometime down the road, a guest came to town, didn't know the story behind the ST on his forehead, asked one of the locals, hey, why does that man there have the letters ST on his forehead? And that local had forgotten all about the story. He said, you know, I don't know or remember the whole story but I think it means saint, but I'm not sure. So down throughout the years, this young man had changed the perception of what he had been branded as. And guess what? That's exactly what God commissions us to do down throughout the years, is 
we come to him in sin. And we still sin, don't get me wrong. But the world has a high expectation for us that we would live in a way that's consistent with what we preach. We're not always going to be able to do that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to live lives that people would say, yeah, that guy right there, man, he's just a saint. She's just a saintly woman. Because we would attempt to live our lives in that way. And, and that exhortation is not just one given to the church in Corinth, but Paul expected it, that it would be shared, he says in verse, end of verse 2, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Grace and peace. You've heard me say it before, always in that order. Always in that order because you cannot experience true peace until you first experience the grace of God. The whole world is looking for peace, but they're never going to find true peace until they first accept God's grace. Right? And so if you're here this morning and that's you, let me tell you something. It's not out there anywhere to be found peace, not true peace. Even Elvis, he had everything. And he said he'd trade it all for 30 minutes of peace. Because only by God's grace can you experience true peace. Now, some of you veterans might be saying, okay, all right, the old grace and peace bit again. But you have to understand that this is important for you today, just as important as it was for you the day of your salvation, to understand that you needed God's grace. You need God's grace to this day. Because I can only know the peace of God this morning as I'm strong in the fact that he deals with me on the basis of grace. It is so important for us to remember that. I mean, you could be like the folks in Corinth that were just outside of their minds. I mean, their behavior within the church, their testimony outside of the church, and Paul's got to correct them. But it's no different for you and me. We are in just as much need as they were of being reminded that God will always deal with us on the basis of grace. Because it's one thing to believe that intellectually this morning, as many of you do. It's another thing to believe that concerning your circumstances. Because if you ever come to church before and felt like your worship was interrupted, like as Pastor Mike prayed, like maybe there's a wall put up there, maybe like even now, like you're having a hard time digging in and hearing God's word. I mean, there's only a couple reasons that I can think of as to why you can't dig in. I know I've been there before. Number one, it could be because you've been going through a difficult time. Maybe there's been sin in your life. Maybe there's been sin this week, and it kind of puts up a block where you feel like you can't listen to God's word. You can't worship him. You know, sometimes it's in the car on the way over. Yeah, we know about all those kinds of things. My wife and I happened to us once, I think. Maybe twice. <laughs> no, but, you know, maybe even some of you this morning. And that's what happens. You can have sin in your life and you go, well, I'm not worthy to hear from him or worship him or any of those kinds of things. That, that's one reason for sure that you can miss out on an entire service. And, and the other reason is just because you're bored by me. But it's one of those two things for sure. Probably, hopefully it's the first one, but you never know. 
But the point is, is that that wall that we put up is artificially created by me and by you because we've forgotten that God deals with us on the basis of his grace. When you came to him as a Christian, you knew you got nothing to offer. But then somehow along the way in your wisdom as a Christian, you start thinking you've got to do this or stay away from that in order for him to accept your worship or for you to be able to hear from him in the message this morning. And that is not the case. God still deals with you on the basis of grace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And if the peace of God isn't ruling in your hearts, then something is getting in the way and you need to give it over to God and leave it with him. Leave it at the foot of the cross. He paid too great a price for you to be walking around with that. Here's a little tip, just a little tip. In fact, if you come back tonight, and I would encourage you to come back tonight for the worship night, I'm really looking forward to that. It's gonna be awesome. But a little tip, come prayed up before you get here. You know, we used to do, myself and another pastor, we used to put on these retreats for the college group at the last church that I was at. And oftentimes we would begin the retreat with communion. And the reason why was because we wanted them focused on grace before they started the retreat. Because oftentimes it wasn't until the second, the third, or the fourth session that a light bulb would go off and then they would go, oh, man, that really hit me where I'm living. I mean, now I'm on fire. This is an awesome thing. But no, it was good from the beginning, but just they weren't, they felt like they were disconnected from God in a way because they hadn't brought their sin to God and been cleansed and given a pure heart and clean hands and, and God restoring them so they could hear everything from the beginning. So grace and peace, don't ever forget that grace means that I can just rest in the fact that I'm a child of God and that I have his favor and that he wants to talk to me precisely because you did sin this week. Oh, but I sinned this week. I don't know if I should go to church. That's exactly why you should be in church. Because he wants to talk to you about what happened this week. Or he wants to encourage you or exhort you along those lines. So grace, grace, grace. He emphasizes it again in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So now here is the section in which he starts to give thanksgiving for the Corinthian Christians. And if you don't have a whole lot of good things to say about somebody, well, you can at least thank God for the grace that he's given them. You know, if you're running out of things, I don't know what to say. I'm going to thank God for the grace that he's given them because they need a lot of grace. But you know what? Even in your own life, this is true too. You know, you might be here this morning, you might be like, you know, I don't have a whole lot to be thankful for in my life. I feel like I'm not being blessed. I feel like it's one trial after the next. I'm flat broke. I lost my job. Relationships are all messed up. I seem to foul everything up that I get involved in. The only thing I have is grace. Well, guess what? When it's all said and done, when you get to heaven, if it's not the only thing, it will certainly be at the top of the list of the things that you thank God for is grace. Seems like 99.99% of the things that we pray for as Christians are things we're not going to be thanking God for in heaven. They're not going to matter. What's going to matter is his grace. So this is no cheap compliment here. If it's the only thing you could thank him for, it's the best thing you can thank him for. God, thank you for your grace. 
But there was one other thing that Paul was thankful to God that he found to be true for the Christians there in Corinth. And actually, this thing that he was thankful for only goes to highlight the tragedy that was taking place within that church spiritually. He says, verse 5, that you, that they, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. They were gifted. They were a super gifted bunch. He says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Their gifting confirmed the testimony of Christ inside of them. Does that make sense? They knew that they were Christians because of their gifting. They had incredible gifting. They had people speaking in tongues and a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom and worship leaders and teachers and pastors and all of these kinds of very gifted group to the point that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. But here's the problem. The testimony of Christ was not confirmed by them to the community very well at all. So they got the benefit of having this incredible gifting so that they knew they were saved, but unfortunately their testimony to the people on the outside wasn't very strong. But it wasn't because of a lacking of gifting. He says in verse 7, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So unfortunately, Paul could not praise them for their great faith or their great love, or like he did there at the end of Romans, he praised them for their great obedience because they were none of these things. Instead, all he could do is thank God for their gifting. He talked about them being short and no gift, enriched in everything. They're gifted in all utterance and all knowledge. The charisma, it is a reference to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. And we'll talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They were even arguing about those. Instead of just using them for the edification of the church body and benefiting others and even as evidence of the testimony of Christ in them, they were arguing over whose gift was better than whose gift or whom's gift or whatever. But they were arguing about that kind of thing rather than just using their gifts for the edification of the church body. And so all Paul can basically do, I mean, this is it. This is all he can do in thanksgiving is thank God, number one, for the grace you've given these folks because they need it. Number two, for the gifts because they were a gifted bunch. And then number three, also for their uh, security as well because they needed to hear that also. He says, verse eight, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great note, by the way. It, again, despite all of the things we're going to see and hear, because of Christ, they were blameless. That makes me feel really good about myself. <laughs> because God looks at me, not because of me, but because of Christ, blameless. And he's able to confirm me and confirm you all the way to the end. Now, I don't care what you've done. Listen, there may be two people in this room this applies to right now. I don't care what you've done. Sometimes people say things to me like, well, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. Yeah, I probably do. And nothing you confess would ever shock me. It might, because of how I deem your character, it might shock me a little bit. I might go, wow, I, I'm surprised coming from you that you did that. 
but whatever you've done, I've probably done too, or one of the uh, many godly people in this room have done as well. Sometimes you just got to go ahead and confess that. Get that off your chest. Find a brother or sister and talk to him about that. But you know what? Look what it says. He is able also to confirm you to the end that you may be, and isn't that you may be in italics also? Also not including the original language, blameless. It just says, confirm you to the end, blameless in the original language. That's a phenomenal truth. So you take the worst church that there was basically in the New Testament, and Paul says, you'll be blameless. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Why? Because verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called, and there's that word called again, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, outside of verse 18, I think this might be the most important verse in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I think the whole thing kind of revolves around it. Remember, we talked about that word called, that they're called saints. And I think that they, and I think sometimes we, forget how high a calling it is, not to a particular ministry, to children's ministry or worship team or anything like that, but just the calling to be a saint. He says there that they were called into the fellowship of his son. That's a special, special calling. The word fellowship there is koinonia, and it means to have everything in common. It's to be in partnership with Jesus Christ himself. Alan Redpath once said this. He said, all he has, that is God, all he has is at your disposal now. And his desire is that all you have should be at his disposal now and always. And so, by the way, that is both the problem and the solution in short here as we wrap up. Yeah, we're going to look at this book. It's a wonderful book. I'm so excited for this journey down 1 Corinthians. It'll be life-altering. It is phenomenal. But before we even begin to go down looking at this on a case-by-case basis as case studies for implementation within a church on how to handle this situation or that situation, we have to be careful that we don't start in the right place that we don't start by reminding ourselves of our high calling to be saints, that we are saints, and that we share in a fellowship of Jesus Christ. Sure, if we had a time machine this morning, perhaps we would send some folks back to Corinth, you know, some church growth consultants or some experts on small group development so they could have some accountability or we'd send some couples in our church that are real loving to teach them how to love one another. Because remember, uh, Corinthians is also known for the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. He had to define love for them because they did not know how to love one another even though they were called saints. So all kinds of problems. Yes, it would be great to go through all these problems, but from the beginning, I think we see Paul giving us a clue as to what the solution to what these problems are, lest we would be tempted to think that the solution would ever lie independent of Christ, that it would be found in any kind of counsel or advice that you or I could ever give. Now, don't get me wrong. We do counseling here. I provide counseling at times. But there's a mistake in thinking that the answer to the problem is in counseling and not found in Jesus Christ himself. 
The problem and the answer to the problem are one and the same. They are not working in partnership with Jesus Christ. When the bombs went off in Boston 13 days ago, a woman in our congregation texted my wife very simply, and she said, you know, this just underscores the very thing we've been looking at on Sunday, Sunday morning, that our country needs the gospel. And that was it. There was nothing else that she said, and there was nothing else that needed to be said. Before you go down this road, and we will, but before we go down this road, tackling problems and how you deal with these kinds of issues and addressing certain controversies, the starting point needs to be the same, and that is Jesus Christ. And he makes it obvious because in those nine verses, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Christ is in every single verse. Look at that. Every single verse. Only verse 5 does he use him, but he's referring to him being Jesus Christ. He goes out of his way, unlike any other place in Scripture, where it's Jesus, 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 and just in case you didn't hear, Jesus. Oh, no, the pastor's laying on us the whole it's all about Jesus thing again. Next week, I'll try to come up with something more innovative and creative. But we're going to make the focus about Jesus Christ. We're worshiping today. Might as well. But because of the fact that, well, you just can't even begin to deal with practical problems until you first have the proper perspective. That is Jesus Christ's spirit working through me and you. Look, one thing, and then I'll close. There's a great temptation as we walk with the Lord down throughout the years to give advice and counsel. For you that are moms, table leaders, Bible study teachers, prayer warriors that people call on the phone for prayer, the temptation sometimes is to operate as a problem solver because you have wisdom, you have some discernment, you know the scriptures, and you know how to apply them to help people and it's a big temptation. And trust me, my wife and I talk about it all the time. Someone calls us on the phone, the first thing I want to go into is, I want to solve your problem mode. But I learned this a long time ago, that really as Christians, the most important thing for us to do, rather than try and solve someone's problems, is infuse Jesus into the problem. That's the key. I could give them all kind of counsel and Bible verses, but if I can get them focused on Jesus, the Holy Spirit will take care of the problem on, on their behalf. I don't have to solve their problem. I can't solve their problem. And so from the beginning, before we look at any of these problems, and before you deal with any problems you have in your life or any challenges or trials or difficulties you're going to face this week, be sure you infuse the Lord Jesus into the mix because he's the answer. He's the starting point and the ending point for all things. Amen.